Good morning, and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. This week on Jew in the City, we got to the topic of how do you know which Orthodox Jewish community to choose. This is a topic that um, I've wanted to talk about for a while. Um, my uh, alma mater, Darche Noam Madrash Recha, where I studied in Israel, asked if I would ever consider doing a sponsored post, and I had in my mind a sponsored post that I wanted to tell for so long anyway about as I was, um, you know, sort of searching for my path uh, in, in orthodoxy because growing up I sort of could tell from the outside looking in that there were differences between communities, but I didn't know what those differences meant. Um, and when I set out to become an observant Jew, I was so confused about the different differences because I quickly learned that everybody wanted me to be just like them and it felt like everyone had an agenda and it was terribly confusing. So anyway, you can hop on over to JewInTheCity.com to find out what my solution to that problem was. But um, today's guest, um, I think what I like so much about him, um, I like a lot of things about him, but I think what I like so much about him is that when I first heard about him, he uh, was doing an event, giving a class for Project Makom, which is our ex-Haredi initiative, or at former and questioning Haredi initiative, uh, I should say. Uh, it's to give people who uh, grew up in a uh, more of a closed uh, part of the from world uh, another option to be observant with a little bit more, uh, you know, openness um, while still being halachic. And um, when I first noticed this uh, individual's friend list on Facebook, I was really uh, quite pleased to see that his uh, list of friends was as diverse as mine. Um, he has friends from every type and stripe of the from community, uh, observant, non-observant, formally observant, every flavor. And um, unfortunately, we don't always see that. A lot of people stay uh, kind of within their boxes and, you know, kind of have... Um, certain ideas about their camp versus the other camp. And this is within uh, religious and not religious, and this is within different branches of orthodoxy. And it's, it's really something that pains me so much because I think our, the greatest strength that we have as Jews is um, when we unite with one another. And um, I lament uh, you know, too often that the times we come together most is when there are people chasing us <laughs> with guns or knives or you know things that are happening right now, unfortunately. And so it's so great to see someone that just is a, a unity type of person when times are good as well. His name is Rabbi Simcha Weinstein. Um, he is an internationally known speaker and best-selling author of Up, Up, and Ive, How Jewish Culture, How Jewish History, Culture, and Values Shape the Comic Books, Hero, Superhero, sorry about that, um, and Stick Shift Jewish Humor in the 21st Century. He's appeared on CNN and NPR. He has been profiled in leading publications, including the New York Times, Miami Herald, and London Guardian. A syndicated columnist, he writes to the Jerusalem Post, JTA News, Royal Shakespeare Company, Condé Nast, and other agencies. He chairs a religious affairs committee at Pratt Institute, the renowned New York art school, and was recently voted New York's hippest rabbi, be cool, by PBS affiliate Channel 13. And he travels the globe lecturing and is famous for his engaging speaking style. And today he is on Jew in the City Speaks. Rabbi Simcha, thank you so much for joining us. It is a pleasure, an honor, and a privilege to be on the show. Excellent. Um, so, um, so like I said, we um, we connected, I guess, originally through this Project Makam event, and then our relationship kind of uh, developed, and we found something new to work on with this um, Wells of Miriam art opening happening next week, which uh, we will speak about further on. Um, but, you know, you have a pretty interesting story. Um, I guess if you could just start off sort of sharing with our listeners Kind of what was your Jewish background growing up? Where did you begin before you became the great Rabbi Simcha? 
I'm still trying to become the great Rabbi Shemcha. Uh, and I don't know if I could really do justice to the story in half an hour, but I guess, you know, I like to tell people I didn't grow up uh, religious, observant, um, Chabad. You know, for want of a better word, I grew up normal. Uh, I'm from Manchester, England. I guess you could say I grew up traditional, uh, meaning Jewish and Israel light. Uh, you know, we attempted to keep uh, the Sabbath in our own way, but, uh, you know, really uh, the soccer, the pop culture was sort of uh, almost like a religion to me. And uh, later on in college, you know, I sort of gravitated to the from a crowd. I really liked the sense of, of morality. I liked the song. I liked the community. And uh, after, uh, you know, trips to uh, Israel, I started to sort of take things seriously and I guess more to the next level. In fact, my background work-wise was uh, in the film industry. I worked as a film location manager, but uh, I guess, you know, uh, uh, I guess they say, uh, you know, you make plans and uh, Hashem uh, laughs. Uh, and today I, I chair the Religious Affairs Committee at Pratt Institute, which is kind of cool because I used to go to art school and now I'm the rabbi of an art school. So it really is like journeying and ministering to myself 20 years ago. Cool. So there wasn't like one specific life-changing moment like happened in my life that made you say like, now I want to live an observant life. You just kind of slowly found yourself hanging out more with like the, the observant crowd and sort of slowly found your, your way to observance? Yeah, it was not, I, I, I would say it was an evolution, not a revolution. And it was really the people that I met along the way. They were just interesting and exciting and, and had like a sort of a vibrancy and a spirituality and uh it really was uh, an evolution, and I think I'm still evolving right now. Now, you know, something that you know that we deal with here at Jew in the City is stereotypes of the Orthodox community. You grew up traditional, but you didn't know the religious community too intimately. Did you grow up with misunderstandings or stereotypes about Orthodox Jews that you later discovered were not true? Yeah, I guess I did. I mean, uh, you know, growing up uh, in England, it was a little bit uh, segregated, I guess, the non uh, Orthodox, you know, crowd, you know, uh, would stick together, and we always saw the Orthodox crowd as the um, the frummies, as we would call them in England. Uh, and, and I sort of, you know, perhaps saw the frummies as a little bit, uh, you know, distant, removed from society. And in fact, what really struck me was was how involved the the from Orthodox community were with with soccer, with politics. They were very erudite, very informed. But they had this beautiful sense of, uh, of family, of, of faith, of tradition. Uh, there was a safety net. There was, there was less of a sense of, of competition, uh, more of a sense of, of community. Beautiful. Do you feel like part of what you do, part of what your work involves, breaking down stereotypes about the observing community now that you have joined them? Yeah, I, I very much feel sort of the breaker between cultures. In fact, you know, uh, now I, I've written books about pop culture and Judaism. Uh, it's something I'm very comfortable. You know, my I have a degree in film history. I went to film school. So I really enjoy talking about the synthesis of theology and pop culture. And many times when I've been lecturing, people have told me, you know, Rabbi Simcha, you know, you really changed my, uh, my perception of what we thought uh, an, an Orthodox Jew was. And also living in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn, it's a very interesting neighborhood because I'm sort of at the epicenter uh, between the, the Haredi world in Williamsburg and I guess mm. the Clinton Hill um, 
brownstone Brooklyn hipster community, and I really feel like the bridge, uh, which in many ways has been the culmination of my life's journey, and it's something I, I take uh, very seriously. So if you were on Jimmy Kimmel Live, would they call you hipster or chassid or both? You'd probably be one of the both, right? So, um, they, they would definitely call me hipsid. Hipsid, very nice. So, okay, so you, you said you um, feel like you're that bridge between the two cultures. So let's get into your books and Up, Up, and Oy Vey, How Jewish History, Culture, and Values Shaped the Comic Book Superhero. So why did you write this book? When did you write this book? Kind of t- take us through the process of what makes someone want to write about Torah and comic books. Sure. In fact, the, the book is really a collaboration of me and my students at Pratt, and it was literally kind of, I guess, composed, at least in my head, over copious bowls of chicken soup at 3 o'clock in the morning. I, I grew up as a comic book zealot. I was always aware there was a Jewish influence. I'd read um, Michael um, Chibon's book, The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is a fictional book. It actually won the Pulitzer Prize about... Jewish creators of superheroes, and I wanted to find who were the real Cavalier and Clay. I started to discover people like Stan Lee, who created almost all of the Marvel superheroes. His name, he actually was born with the name Stanley Lieber. I've had the chance to interview him. I discovered people like the late Jack Kirby, who actually went to Pratt for a day and left because he couldn't afford the tuition. Times have not really changed. Uh, Jack Kirby was born Jacob Kurtzberg. And I discovered all these incredible people, and I wanted to bring them together in a book. So I started to research. I started to go to comic book conventions. I met incredible people like Jerry Robinson, who passed a couple of years ago. Jerry was a Jewish um, journalist student at Columbia. He created the immortal Joker, Batman's nemesis. And I wanted to show how you know writers write about what they know about. Um, you know, these were... Um, you know, young immigrant Jews raised in a, in a storytelling tradition, rich in biblical archetypes. Writers, after all, write about what they know about, and they infuse their characters with a particularly Jewish worldview. At the time, I really had no idea how successful and how popular the book would become. It, it really uh, had tremendous traction. It, it took me sort of all over the world. And now it's become, I guess, a respected sort of topic within pop culture. Hmm, very cool. Did any of these comic book um, writers have observant backgrounds or yeshiva educations, or more like they came from parents who did? Um, Jack Kirby's father was actually uh, Shoma Shabbos, but uh, by and large, they, they came from assimilated traditional backgrounds, which really is represented in their characters. It's interesting that many of these uh, creators changed their names. They had one identity at home, another identity at work, and amazingly, they create characters who themselves have assimilated archetypes, one identity at home, another identity at work. It's really impossible not to see the superhero as anything but allegorical of the Jewish immigrant experience. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, so now you mentioned that you, know, you went to film school, and you said you also got a, what was it, something, history of art of something? Remind yeah, me I did a degree in film history, which is... Uh, Actually, quite helpful for a rabbi, believe it or not. <laughs> so, what? How would you describe how does your art uh, play? Oh, so, how, how does your art play into your into your observance into the way that you see the world as a religious Jew? Um, is it? Uh, do you see it as kind of like a service to God in a way when you create? Is it a room for expression or? 
Wait, how how is it? How does your art play in, uh, for you in a religious element? I mean, uh, it's a good question. I, I guess originally, when I first went to yeshiva, I was almost embarrassed of my background in the arts, my background in pop culture. I felt perhaps it didn't in with the Torah lifestyle. But I think I've since discovered that in, in a in a very uh, maybe uh, divine providence, but these ultimately have become my tools to connect with my students. The students are able to say to me, oh, you know, he's, he's a regular guy. He understands the culture. He understands, you know, uh, media. So for me, it's really been a way to sort of bridge gaps. It's been a way to kind of um, explain polar concepts. It's also been a way to talk about biblical archetypes, uh, which is something that really fascinates me. I'll give you one concrete example that uh, Superman, the iconic all-American hero, was actually based on the story of Moses, just like um, Egypt faces internal implosion, and baby Moses is put in a reed basket, sent down the Nile, grows up in a foreign culture, foreign land, and uh, becomes the savior of humanity. It's also the story of Superman as baby Cal El is put, which is Hebrew, uh, for the vessel of voice of God, put in a, in a rocket ship, sent away, becomes the savior. So for me, it's been a very interesting sort of vehicle, I guess, to teach and to connect. Hmm. So you use it, sort of the archetypes you take from one um, place and you make it relatable to something else. I mean, I guess that's a lot of what kind of we do at Jew in the City. We look for kind of current events and things in the media and we look for, you know, kind of Torah lessons or deeper lessons. And I think, I think ultimately that's the way to make things relevant, to find things that people are familiar with and to take it to, you know, sort of a deeper level with, uh, with Torah wisdom. Very cool. Um, so I wanted to sort of get back to what we were talking about at the beginning in terms of, you know, you kind of being out of the box and having friends from everywhere. How did that happen? How did you become someone that, you know, doesn't just stay in his circles? And do you have any advice, of, you know, for other people about how, why they should do something similar? Yeah, no, I, I think it was very important when I became more sort of uh, observant, more involved. There is that tendency to... Uh, to, uh, what's the word, to go a little, you know, sugar with Frumkite. But I think it's yeah. very important to keep your friends, to keep your family. Uh, I really, you know, tried very hard to not, you know, judge my friends. They're, they're my friends. They're my, they're my best friends who I grew up with, my family. At the time, my parents were not so involved. And the amazing thing has happened that, that they've sort of come along with me. My friends now see me as their rabbi when they have... Uh, uh, theological questions, they'll call me, you know, if there's a passing in a family, they'll call me what to do. Um, so it's, it, I've really become, I guess, uh, you know, a rabbi and, and a leader to, to my friends, to my family, and uh, that's something that's very important. I, I think that about children should not sort of run away, but should embrace um, their backgrounds and, and uh, really try very hard to, uh, to keep friendships and, and elevate friendships. After all, you know, if religion can't uh, bring us together, then, then, then that's, uh, that's a problem. I completely agree. You know, an example that I give in one of my talks, um, you know, I'm sure you've heard that I, that I learned for many years with Mayim Bialik. Um, one of the questions that came up, you know, as we were learning was she had done a photo, a series of headshots before she started dressing modestly, and she was about to put up a website, um, and it was covered in all these, you know, sleeveless tops and low-cut tops, and she emailed me and said, what should I do? How should I handle this? And I said, you can't control Google images, but you can control your own website, so take them down. 
And she wrote back like a sad face to me, but they're so pretty. And then I realized um, this message is all wrong that I was given her. Don't throw, don't throw them out. Find a way to modify them. Find a way to take um, what's great about them and then tweak them to fit your needs now. And so I said, um, I have a weird suggestion. Everyone in Hollywood uses Photoshop to, you know, make themselves look more sexy. So how about we use Photoshop to make you look less sexy? Um, and so... The site came down immediately, and she worked with the graphic designer to, you know, add sleeves and neckline and that sort of a thing. Um, but I think it's a great parable for the same idea. Don't throw the old world out. Uh, keep it with you and make your changes, you know, as necessary, but um, hold on to where you come from. Um, so is that, is, is that how you got involved with kind of the OTD, you know, formerly uh, religious crowd? Because I know you have done some events with us at Project Malcolm. You've spoken, you've hosted some events, but you were kind of already working in the space already. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got started there? Sure. I guess just to sort of reiterate what you were saying, I think the Balchuva journey, much like the superhero journey, it, it very much is a journey. There are stages. I think that there's a time, just like uh, Noah goes into the ark. I think there's a time to go into the ark. I think there's almost a time where it's good to, to from out, to get a little fanatic, to perhaps, uh, you know, uh, shit out the outside world and all the mishigas of, of, of Google and, and pop culture. And then I think ultimately it's healthy to come out and to embrace the world and to elevate the world, but to do the to do that on your terms. In, in, in regards to the, the OTD, and I, I'm not even sure what labels I, I, I would use. Everyone is, you know, uh, everyone's trying to find the data. You know what? I was told I, that, I, that I, OTD I, is actually considered good right now. I used to be afraid to use it, and then people in that community said that we have embraced it. So I, I'm using it now because I've been told that that's a good thing to do, but um, now I'll get some angry emails. <laughs> okay, but the, the crowd that <laughs> is less observant. <laughs> Yeah, this, this, this past Friday, I, I used the term, and somebody called me out on it. So uh, Really? Oh, you know man, what? see? Uh, like, you, you think know, you're good, and then... You know, no, you can't good. speak, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, no, I, I, guess the, I guess the interesting thing about the OTD community is, is, and I never expected this to happen. It was not something that I, that I, that I, I, I sought out. But interestingly, I feel extremely at home within the OTD community, for the simple reason that on many levels, they're, they're like the sort of the closest people in regards to my own personal journey. I mean, think about it. The OTD community, have, they, they sort of left the, the um, traditions of their family. They left the traditions of, of, their, of their faith, and they're following Judaism a little differently. It's exactly what I did. You know, I also left the traditions of my... I mean, albeit we're going in, the, we're going in opposite directions, but I really kind of feel like we're meeting in the middle. So I, I kind of feel like a kinship. I understand what it's like, and I know how, how uh, lonely and how, and how difficult that is. So I really feel uh, a kinship sort of judge. I don't like to give sort of muscle. I like to give sort of love and positivity. Yeah. And I found, you know, a lot of, a lot of very deep, deep friends and deep connections uh, with, within that world. But how do they find you? Meaning, like, was it? Do they find you because of your book, or like, there's just like word on the street that you're like the hippest rabbi, or like, how did? Uh, um, it's very good for my ego. Uh, <laughs> um, I guess the books, or um, you know, just living very close to a, a Haredi neighborhood, so you know, Got people, it. you know, word sort of gets out, and and I guess families, you know, call me to give prison or give some TLC, or perhaps. 
with somebody who's not comfortable going to a, a savior and wants something that is more explanation and, and a little more sort of uh, zing and fun. So uh, I guess it, it really happened very sort of organically. It's not something I, I went looking for, but it's, it's uh, become a big part of, I guess, my, my shlichut and my, my life. Very nice. And you've had some involvement so far with Project Makom. Do you have any sort of ideas about, you know, kind of where you think that we should be going? You know, we're hoping to open up a center in the near future and, you know, increase our classes and Shabbatones and social programming. That's kind of where we're headed. Any other thoughts about, you know, kind of formalizing um, programming for people that are looking for their place? Um, you know, I, I think... Project Mokka will find its own equilibrium. I, I think that, that just having the resource there, I, I really think that really ultimately you're scratching the surface because there are, you know, uh, uh, many people in the Haredi world that, that are, are struggling with, with basic questions uh, of, of, of their faith, of their tradition, or asking questions about the outside world. And until now, there are enough resources. It is changing. It's changing, I think, very quickly, and I think there's, there's a real need for safety nets and for resources. So I think just being there, I think, I think you're going to see uh, a real sort of uh, people will come to you for many resources. Some people will come just, you know, for, for a conversation and for a chat and for some for, for some physic. And I think that's, uh, it's really, it's very important work that you're doing. Thank you, and we uh, very much appreciate your involvement so far. Um, and then I guess I want to sort of, you know, close things up because we're coming to the end of our of our time with you. I'm very much enjoying your perspective on things. So tell us about Hadass Art Gallery. I don't think there's probably anything else like it out there. Um, when did this come about? What's the purpose of this gallery? What do you guys do there? Kind of what's coming up? I know we have an event there with you next week, but kind of take us through a little bit about um, what goes on and what it was created for. Sure. So, uh, you know, we started a, a Chabad house by Pratt Institute in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, the crowds uh, that I service are very artsy. Pratt is, you know, one of the finest art schools in the country, if not in the world. And, mm. uh, you know, uh, uh, perhaps, you know, um, Shacharit on Shabbat morning is not always uh, the biggest sell or draw uh, to my constituents. However, there are many artists, and I really, truly believe there's a very powerful spiritual message within art. Um, you know, Hashem is the ultimate creator. We get to become, you know, creative in our own way. And I can tell you, Alison, that when I go to Pratt um, Kanaka, I go around with, with the donuts at 2 o'clock in the morning. When I'm standing in the painting studio, watching people create and transcend, it is so powerful and so spiritual that I really want to give, uh, I want to use my, my Chabad house as, as, as a incubate emerging Jewish art, because there's not enough places for these young artists to show them a step uh, on the ladder. So we really, we tried to make the, the space look like an art gallery. We went to the MoMA in Manhattan. I mean, we are significantly smaller, but we do have the same oak floors, uh, the same lighting. Hey, that, we yes. tried to it, you know, and so... <laughs> Not quite the same size. It's uh, a beautiful space. It was. Uh, uh, I mean, I was there uh, last week, and it's really. Um, it's hip. It feels. It feels very Williamsburg yeah, um, in all the right ways. So we're trying. We're trying. So, uh, so over the years, we've had many, many shows. Maybe you know, close to a hundred shows, and we've hmm. been able to give a platform 
And uh, it's, it's, it's been great. You know, sometimes, you know, artists even get to sell their work. And if I can help them, you know, uh, pay some of those crazy student loans, I think they feel a sense of, of pride. You know, I encourage artists that they should use the space to express their Jewish identity. I don't, uh, I don't enforce any particular, you know, I'm not asking people to draw, you know, to paint colors. Um, you know, that it could be something, you know, very uh, um, sort of obviously Jewish or more sort of, uh, um, I guess, spiritual or symbolic. Uh, the only thing I ask is that the work should be, you know, within the realms of halacha. Uh, and, and that's really it. It's really, you know, it's about the artist. It's been very interesting to see, to journey with them and to see people take it seriously. And, and it's, been, uh, it's been a real pleasure. And so next week we get, we are working on an event together. Um, we have an art opening called Wells of Miriam um, by Emily Stern. Um, have you seen any of the pictures yet? You've seen them digitally, anything in person? Kind of like what do you know so far about next week's opening? Yeah, so we have a curator who's working uh, with Emily. I know the work uh, is very connected to uh, the shortage of water throughout the world. And we know water is, is, a, is a blessing and that, you know, without water, there would be there would be no life, and and the power of water and food and mitzvahs and the blessing of the of the mitzvah within Judaism within within the Jewish people. So there's definitely a very spiritual element, and uh, it, it really looks like it's going to be beautiful work. So yes, yeah, so when Emily, uh, when I first heard about her uh, photo series Wells of Miriam, and I interviewed her on the show uh, many months back. Her insight to mikvah really blew my mind because, you know, as a mikvah-going woman married for 15 years, it's a, an experience that's not really connected to nature in any way, even though I know that, you know, the primordial mikvah uh, started off in nature and that, you know, there are um, natural mikvah oat. It's not something that I think your average woman uh, connects to in that way. And when she explained that there was this w renewable water source called uh, um, water retention landscapes that both renew water in arid areas um, where, you know, the water can kind of keep replenishing itself and vegetation can move in and life starts to form and that this same source of renewable uh, water and life uh, are also technically uh, mikvah oat. Um, it was really, uh, it sort of made mikvah into a new experience for me that this idea of renewal is not just... Uh, you know, something in our marriages and something, you know, spiritual that, uh, you know, a, a man will do for a daily mikvah dip or a Yom Kippur dip, but um, really that the uh, the cycle of renewal in mikvah um, goes even deeper than that. And, of course, a new way to um, to look at the well of Miriam that traveled with um, the children of Israel in the desert when they were wandering. Um, and so we are hosting... Um, some openings next week um, at the Hadass Art Gallery, and uh, we definitely look forward to seeing uh, our listeners there and um, and seeing you there as well. And um, we hope that uh, you know the, the Torah will uh, elevate people, and that um, it will. I know Emily's hope in in putting this out there um, is, is, I guess, maybe the frustration that there. Um, we're not doing more to, to find ways to create these sustainable water systems and to publicize this idea, and hopefully we can, you know, spread uh, the water um, in a physical sense and then also the spiritual water, which we know is Torah. Um, thank you so much for I, I think it's very powerful to, to, yes, very much. And I, I, I think it was very powerful, but I, I know that the work is trying to kind of reclaim 
mikveh as spiritual and also sort of ecological. And to bring these two things together, ecology and spirituality, I think is a very you know, unique and, and special way uh, to give over this powerful idea. So I think it's great that you're giving uh, a forum to do this. Definitely, and um, just for, for those of uh, our listeners who are not able to get to Hadass Art Gallery next week for the opening, um, we do the, the um, Wells of Miriam photo series will be on display until January 19th. And how, how do they get there? They can make an appointment with you, Rabbi Simcha? Sure, it's viewed by appointment, so I could be uh, emailed rabbi at pratt.edu, and we're happy to make a time to show the work. Excellent. Okay. Thank you so much, and uh, looking forward to celebrating with you soon. Great. My pleasure. And thank you for listening today. Um, we hope that you will uh, go to com and uh, check out the tickets that we have for this exciting event. Um, and we hope our plan is to make a video about uh, Orthodox Jewish artists with the proceeds of the ticket sales. Um, and uh, we will see you here, same time, same place, next week. Bye-bye.